When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, Claire McIntosh joins me again, this time to chat about her new book, The Last Party. With over 2 million copies of her book sold worldwide, Claire is the multi-award winning author of I Let You Go, which was a New York Times bestseller. Claire's subsequent novels, I See You and Let Me Lie, were number one bestsellers, and After the End was published in 2019 and became an instant Sunday Times bestseller. In 2021, Hostage flew straight into the top 10. Together, her books have been translated into 40 languages and spent more than 60 weeks in the Sunday Times bestseller list. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Claire. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm really well as well, and I'm so glad you're here to join me again because I loved our conversation about Hostage, and I can't wait to talk about The Last Party. Thank you. It was so much fun talking about flights and all things plane-related, and now we're uh, zooming across to Wales for The Last Party. Which I thought was just fantastic. I'm not sure I've ever read a book set in Wales. And that was one of the things that I liked so much about the story. Thank you. I don't read an awful lot of novels set in, in Wales. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of Scottish crime and a lot of Irish crime. And I just felt that this was a location that could, you know, really speak to people and, uh, and engage readers. And of course, we all, every author I know has their lockdown book and this is mine. And I suppose that fed into the book in lots of, of ways, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into all of that, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of The Last Party for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. The Last Party is essentially a classic murder mystery with a, a contemporary edge. It's set in North Wales, in a fictional part of North Wales 
where the border between England and Wales runs right through the middle of a lake. And on the Welsh side of the lake is a very small rural village, the sort of place where everybody knows everybody. And that's where our detective, Detective Constable Fionn Morgan is from. And on the English side of the lake is a luxury holiday resort of log cabins, decks stretching out over the water, full of incredibly rich English people behaving atrociously. On New Year's Eve, there's a big party. It's kind of meant to build some bridges between the two communities because there are lots of tensions between the two sides. And it's all fine until uh, someone's murdered. And on New Year's Day, when the Welsh locals are going into the lake for their traditional New Year's Day swim, a body floats through the mist from the English side to the Welsh side. And that kickstarts a cross-border investigation. So is that a Welsh tradition to walk into the freezing water on New Year's Day? (laughs) I don't know if it's Welsh. People do it all over the place. I don't know about other countries, but in the UK, it's relatively common to see, you know, a Christmas Day swim, uh, perhaps if you live near the sea or by a lake. And I'm a, a really keen open water swimmer, and I particularly love cold water swimming. And on, uh, I suppose about five years ago, I took the, we had family staying with us for New Year. And on New Year's Day, I got a group of people together, maybe, I guess there were 10 or 12 of us. And we had a short but fun, exhilarating swim to welcome in the new year. And now we have about 100 people who come each year and uh, we raise some money for the mountain rescue team. And it's just a really brilliant way of seeing in the, you know, of welcoming the the new year and feeling really sort of, um, I don't know, like energized, I suppose. And three years ago, I guess, it was New Year's Day and we were all waiting to go into the water. And the so I live in a town with a big lake and it's very, very beautiful. There are mountains all around it. And so if you can imagine this very, very cold, crisp, clear day where the the mountains are sort of reflected in the water and there's just this kind of gentle mist that's sitting right on top of the surface of the water. And everyone around me was saying, oh, this is so beautiful. What a stunning place to welcome the new year. Uh, You know, aren't we lucky? And I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, what if a body floated (laughs) through the water now? Like, you know, what would happen? How would people react? Where's this body come from? And because this is, you know, this is a how the mind of a crime writer and former police officer works. So I went home after the swim and I was thinking about this body and thinking, so where did it come from? Well, it it came from the other side of the lake. Okay, so what's on the other side of the lake? And we were, we we then went into this awful pandemic. So this, I guess this this would have been New Year's Day 2020. Um, So two years ago. And then we went into lockdown and borders became really, really important because you couldn't cross a border or there were laws that were different on one side of a border to the other. And that then cemented the theme of this book. And I thought, okay, that's what's in the middle of this lake. It's a, it's a border. It's the border between England and Wales. Well, you just preempted my next question, which is why you decided to focus on a border. And that does make perfect sense with the pandemic because you're right. I mean, borders became 
so much more important and a focal point for a lot of us that it hadn't been before. Mm. They also, I think they, for me, it sort of, it represented a division. And that divide in the last party is a, a country border, but it's also a division between the wealthy and the not so wealthy. It's also a division between people who live in a village year round and people who come for the weekend to stay in their holiday home. It represents a division between the type of detective that Fionn is and the type of detective that her English counterpart is. So there are lots of ways that I think that that border is represented in in the book and indeed in in life. I think that's exactly right. And I want to talk more about Fionn and Leo in a minute. But I wanted to ask you a little bit more about writing about Wales. You live there. Was it so much fun to bring in some of the traditions, the language, the culture into this book? It was. It really was. So I'm not Welsh. I'm a I'm an English incomer, and so a lot of the themes that I explored in this book, I'm you know I'm very much living. Uh, we moved here six years ago, and it is a Welsh speaking area. So that isn't simply that a oh, Welsh is a language that people can speak. It is the language that they speak. So you know if you walked into someone's home or you walk into a shop, this is what what they're speaking. So my children go to a a school where all their lessons are, are delivered in in Welsh, and I really wanted, I suppose, to explore how how that felt and and how that can look from an outsider's point of view, and that meant using the language in the book. And of course, you've you've got to be quite careful how you do that. It mustn't be too intrusive. You know, I wanted to get to get the flavor of it, I suppose, to use little snippets of Welsh to remind you, to remind the reader that this is the language that those characters would be speaking. But actually, of course, we're just going to give you a tiny bit in Welsh and then the rest of it is in English so, so that you can actually read the book. But that was really fun. And I, I worked with a Welsh editor to do a, a, a kind of a sensitivity read, I suppose, because because I'm not Welsh, and so a I wanted to make sure that the Welsh that I speak, which which I normally call Wenglish, a kind of mixture of Welsh and English, that I was actually using an appropriate type of language for that particular character, because of course characters all speak differently, but also to sense check the book and make sure that things like place names that I'd made up were you know true to to life and that I wasn't misrepresenting a, a culture because that was really important to me. Absolutely. And it's wonderful that there are so many sensitivity readers and ways to focus on that today. Oh, I think so. I you know I, I I'm constantly reading angry articles about sensitivity readers and how you know this is ridiculous and it's all woke this and woke that and and I just don't understand it at all. You know, I, I use experts for so many things, whether it's to check that my police procedure is still up to date, or maybe, you know, in, in the case of Hostage, my last book, I'm not a pilot. I needed to speak to pilots to find out how I would go about landing a, a Boeing 777. There are so many reasons why I need to speak to experts. And to my mind, that's what a sensitivity reader is. It's an expert in a particular field, be that disability or a particular culture, a particular language, you know, whatever it is, they're an expert. And as authors, we have a responsibility to provide 
as authentic an experience as possible for the reader. And more than that, we have a responsibility to the community that we're writing about to make sure we've done our due diligence. Well, and if you didn't, then you'd have all of these people complaining that it wasn't accurate or authentic or realistic. So, I mean, you can't win there, I think. No, you can't. And to be honest, you're always going to get, you're going to get the odd complaint anyway. And you have to remember that, you know, a community is is just that. It's, it's made up of lots and lots of people and you're never going to represent everybody's experience. I think what's important is that you know you have accurately presented at least one person's experience within that community. And then you can say hand on heart that you have done everything you could do to make sure you're, you're writing authentically. Absolutely. Well, this is the start of a new series. Is that correct? Yes, it is. That's exciting. It is. I didn't know it was going to be a series. And if I had known, I might have, I might have done a few things differently. So I never plan to write a series. I've always said that, you know, I, I like standalones. I like the challenge, I suppose, of creating a new world each time. And I like to put my characters through things that can only really happen once. You know, it, it would be unfair to put a member of the public through, you know, multiple traumas book after book. And so series only really work where you've got a character who is a law enforcer or a social worker or a doctor or, you know, someone who is likely to come into contact with these traumatic cases. And I'd never written a police character that I felt sort of merited a series, I suppose. And then Fionn Morgan walked onto my page and honestly, it was like being held hostage, ironically. She's the only character I've ever written who accompanies me outside the house, you know, barges her way into the shower with me, sits on my shoulder, tells me what to do next, tells me what she's thinking, what she's doing, argues with me. She is a nightmare to work with, both as a writer <laughs> and as a fellow police officer. And I, I, you know, that coupled with this location that was really coming to life under my fingertips, and I, I felt this was a location that that readers would want to come back to that, um, you know, what we, we've just talked about, the, the themes of division, of borders, of communities, uh, you know, community tension, that that was something that was rich territory. So I emailed my editor, my UK editor, and I said, um, you know, I'm only 30,000 words or whatever into this draft, but I think I'm writing a series. And she said, well, I'll be the judge of that. You can uh, finish the book and then let's discuss it. Uh, because of course they need to, you know, they, they have to think commercially about these things. But once I'd finished the book and once my editor read it, she she agreed. She said, yeah, it's, you know, Fionn, Fionn needs more than one book. And so that's it. I'm I'm writing a series. And it's both exciting, but also it's also really challenging. You know, I've I've got newfound respect for uh, long-term series writers, because I think from the outside, I had always thought, oh, this is, you know, this is really sort of easy. They don't have to create a new world each time. They can just sort of pick up the story thread um, and just focus on the the kind of story of the week, as it were. And actually, I'm not finding that at all, because 
of course, you've got your characters who, who carry on, but you've also got a whole new cast of characters because the victims and witnesses and you know all the members of public that the police are dealing with are likely to be different from one case to another. In my case, I've sort of shifted the location slightly. So we're still in the same world, but whereas uh, the last party is very much centered around the lake, we're moving up into the mountain for, for this second book. So there are lots of different things that make it slightly more challenging. And also, of course, you've revealed things in the first book that you can't spoil. So I've got twists that happen in the last party, and I cannot refer to them because I want these books to read as standalones. I want someone to be able to pick up the second book or the sixth book or the 16th book or however many I end up writing and enjoy it as a standalone book. And you can't do that if you you know, if you spoil things that have gone earlier or if you refer too much to things that have happened in the past. So I'm still learning about how to get that balance right. What would you have done differently if you thought you were writing a series from the beginning? I think I might have planned out, not lots of books, but maybe planned out a long-term story for Fionn so that I kind of knew where her life was likely to take her. And I might have been a little bit more organised with the wider geography. So I was, I was quite sort of casual with references of where the nearest town might be. And of course, now what I'm finding is if I want a character to go somewhere, I have to think about the geography that I've created. And I end up kind of going, oh, no, but they can't do that because I, I said in the first book, there isn't another town for 45 minutes. And so now, you know, I'm stuck. So there are silly things, sort of logistical things like that. The only thing I think is, is quite nice, this is my positive spin on it. What's nice about not having planned out Fionn's life is actually Fionn is not the sort of person who has her life planned out. So she doesn't know where she's going to be in five years time. And so kind of follows that as her writer, and I am very much doing what she tells me, not the other way around, that I wouldn't know either. So I guess we'll, you know, we'll figure it out together. And it gives you a lot more flexibility. It does. Yes. Yes. And I'm not sort of, I'm not working towards an end goal. I think I find it alien to me because when I write my books, I am a real plotter. So I chart my books with forensic detail. You know, I plan my books like I would investigate a murder. And so the idea of not knowing what's happening to her in three books time goes against my my method of working, but that's probably quite a good thing for me. Takes you in a different direction than you might normally go. Yeah, absolutely. It's exciting. Will Leo return? Yes. Good. I was hoping that the two of them were going to be making up the series. I wasn't sure. Yes, it's interesting because normally when you have a police series, you'll often have a duo, won't you? And it, you know, it'll be the kind of the Smith and Jones series or or whatever. And this is, I think it says on on uh, somewhere on on the cover, the first DC Morgan mystery. So it, it's her series, but I think that's just representative of the fact that she is very much the sort of the centre of attention and. You know, the, the kind of, she's like a torpedo and everything else is, is in her wake. But yes, Leo, so Leo Brady is the English detective who has to work with 
Fion to investigate this cross-border murder. And he will be in book two and in subsequent books, but not necessarily in the same capacity, uh, because there are, you know, there's kind of a limit to how many police jobs are going to happen exactly on a border. And so, in fact, book two does have another cross-border investigation. But after that, there'll be a slightly different approach to how he's in Fionn's life. But I'll, uh, I'll let you discover that when we get to it. Sounds great. Yes, I would think there are only so many cross-border problems that you can create in this area. Yeah, there <laughs> are. But I found, I found a good one for book two. So that's the main thing. How do you choose your characters' names? You know, it was not something I'd really thought about before, but because you are using both British and Welsh names and some of the names are different and distinct, how do you go about choosing them? I find names impossibly hard. I mean, it's just, it's wild the amount of time I can spend choosing a name when I should just like leave a placeholder and write the darn book. Uh, I, I look I look at Facebook a lot and what I'll often do is I will go to a friend's friends list and then I'll go to one of their friends' friends lists and then once I'm safely away from my friends, then I will look through and I might pick a first name and then someone else's last name or I might mix up, you know, uh, the start of a name. and the, So I'll play around like that. I will look for inspiration in baby name websites. So maybe I'll kind of look and see what was popular in, you know, the 1980s for for boys and then uh, work out what what my, my pool of names is. I have a terrible tendency to default to the same names. So in my debut, I Let You Go, uh, there are three walk-on parts called Emma. Uh, which is clearly just a kind of a default name. And I didn't notice this until a reader wrote to me and said, are these the same Emma or different Emmas? And I was like, oh my word, why have I written three Emmas in it? Um, So I try and and pick names that are different. I try and choose different initials so that, because it can be confusing for a reader if the, the names start with all the same initials. So it is hard. And then with the Welsh names, the, the tricky thing is that there's a much smaller pool of Welsh names. And so, for example, my children's school maybe has, uh, gosh, I don't know, maybe 50 members of staff. And there are at least four teachers called Beth Ann Jones. And that's very, very common. You know, lots of names are, are similar. And so here in Wales, people will use middle names to distinguish or they'll they'll have a, a kind of a nickname that goes with their their name. So they would be Bethan Shop if they work in a shop or Bethan Post if they worked in the post office. It would be that kind of thing. But you can't really do that in a novel because if you start throwing, you know, 17 Bethan Joneses at a reader, they're going to get really confused. So I had to use a bit of artistic license there. And um, yeah, it's a lot of work really for something that should be quite simple. But I think it really isn't that simple because when I started thinking about that question and realizing how many names have connotations for me, it would be difficult because you do associate names with the people you know or famous people or whatever it is. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. So I, I change names quite a lot, actually, between drafts. So it's not uncommon for me. I, very, I, I don't think I ever change the central characters' names. You know, someone like Fionn would just be Fionn all the way through. But 
when I tackle a major rewrite, especially if I'm changing someone's personality, then I'll change their name. And that's less about it matching their new personality, although sometimes that's the case. And it's more about my head taking an absolutely clean and fresh approach and saying, you know, okay, this is this is a new, you know, blank page. We're going to write this in a very different way. So the names names for me are quite fluid. That makes sense. And it may impact you as, as you're writing, as you said, or you encounter something or something happens in the news and you may decide to make a change. Yeah, absolutely. And with the Welsh names in the last party, my editor asked me to change a couple of them that she felt were really tricky to pronounce. And I, I kind of have mixed feelings about that because I, I've read, gosh, lots of books in translation, for example, from Scandinavian languages where I really can't pronounce the names. And I just, I just sort of go with it. You know, I, I kind of take a, I suppose, a visual snapshot of that name. I know what it is. I don't need to pronounce it in my head to enjoy the book. But I, I took her point. And so I did change some some names. And so an example of this, I, I shall spell the name for you. So the, the name of one of the characters was spelt L-L-I-N-O-S. So would you have any idea how you might <laughs> pronounce that? No, because I figured Fionn was pronounced way more complicated than it is. So I guessed wrong on that. So no, I would have no idea. How do you pronounce that? So so that would be Hlinos. Oh, gosh. And I totally get that that's, you know, it's a difficult sound for, for lots of people to make. And we don't want readers to stumble over it to the, to the point where it spoils the story. So I changed Klinos to, I think, Mia, which is, you know, still a Welsh name, but something that's a bit more straightforward for a, a lot of readers to, to say in their head. How do you pronounce the town name? Cum Coid. Okay, because I wondered as I was reading, it didn't hiccup me or anything. I just was so curious. I was like, if I have to talk about that out loud, I'm just going to have to say the town. <laughs> because I was like, I have no idea how I say that. <laughs> but that's fun. And it's fun to learn. I mean, that's partly what I really liked about your book. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've had to learn a lot since, since moving to Wales, not just the language, but, you know, street names and all, all sorts of things, uh, as well as cultural elements. And I, when I'm reading a novel, I love learning about places. And although The Last Party is set in a fictional part of the world, it's very much rooted in this specific part of North Wales where I, where I live. So it is very authentic. And for people who like reading about specific regions, then I think they'll really enjoy that element of it. Absolutely. Introduces them to something they're probably not very familiar with. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, I, something that always strikes me about America and uh, when, when I visit there is that a, a lot of people are really, really intrigued by their ancestry. Um, you know, I've met so many people who, uh, whose family come from Scotland or Ireland or Wales. And I think that's quite fun as well. You know, if, if you've got any connection, if you know anyone who came from Wales, to read a book set there is quite a cool thing to do. I think that's right. It always makes me want to visit that place. So I just kind of continue to add to my lists of places to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the title and the cover. I was interested when I looked up your cover to see what the UK cover looked like compared to the US that they're the same. That is not that common anymore. I know. And I have no idea why this is the case. 
I like the cover a lot. I I think it's a really kind of strong sort of brand for the start of a series. So I can all I, we haven't even started looking at what the, the the cover for book two will look like, but I can kind of in my head I know I'll recognise it. You know, it's it's um I love the bright pink of the last party. And when my US team saw the UK cover concept, they said, "Well, we we love it. We'll you know we'll just go with that." And they did the same with Hostage as well, which makes it really easy for readers when they're sharing it online. Because, of course, what, what we've got nowadays that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago is much closer marketing mechanisms because we're all sharing things on social media. And so readers in the US aren't nearly as separate from readers in the UK or France or Germany or, or wherever. And so it is quite nice to have the same cover so that when a reader shares it, other readers from other countries recognize it straight away. I agree with that completely. And I love the cover. And I think it's very striking. And I think, as you mentioned, the second you see it, you know it's your book. And I think that's great marketing. But I also think it's really nice because what you're just describing, when I see all of these British or Australian or Canadian, sometimes even bloggers posting or Instagrammers posting, and then I'm like, what book is that? And I look, I'm like, oh, I have read that book. It's just got such a different cover that it kind of throws you a little bit. So it's really nice that the cover is the same. Yeah, and quite often, and I'm thinking now as a, as a reader uh, rather than a writer, I will remember covers more than I'll remember titles, especially with some psychological thrillers where we're circling around similar themes. And I'm, I'm as guilty as this as, as any other writer with I see you and I let you go and let me lie. You know, they're they they can be difficult titles to remember, I think. Whereas once I see the cover, I know that I've, you know, I've read it, I've got it on my shelves. I think that's exactly right. And it's hard sometimes to even just remember the combination of words and the order they go in. And I'm a much more visual person. So as soon as I see a cover, I'm like, oh, yes, that's it. What about the title, The Last Party? Was that your title from the beginning? Or did that happen as you were progressing? What was the story with that? Oh, my word, the title almost, almost delayed the entire book. It was so hard. Honestly, if, if thinking up character names is hard, then thinking up titles for me is just impossible. For quite a long time, the book was just untitled. And then it was called Still Waters, as in Still Waters Run Deep. And then it was Dark Waters for a time, which actually is its uh, Icelandic title and Finnish title. But nothing was quite right. And we had a huge brainstorming session. uh, And then we threw around titles on a Google Doc for weeks and weeks and weeks. And eventually, we came up with the last party, which I loved and, you know, continue to love. And as soon as as we, we hit upon it, everyone was kind of like, well, of course, that's the title. You know, it's so simple. And why on earth did we not think of that three months ago? But it's it's hard. It's very hard. And I'm also relieved it's got the same title in uh, in the US and the UK because that's a bit of a line in the sand for me. I, I would really struggle to have a book that had a different title in the US than the UK because I think it can be really confusing for readers. I think that's exactly right. And I think making that a line in the sand is important because I find it so confusing when a book is titled differently in different places. Because then I'm like, how did they have two books coming out at the same time? And I'm like, oh, no, wait a minute. This is the title here and this is the title here. And it, it just makes it so confusing. I think it's very unnecessary. 
Yeah, it is. It is. So I'm intrigued. When you looked at this cover, you said that you uh, you were surprised to see it was the same in uh, on both sides of the pond. Did you look at it and think, oh, it doesn't look like an American cover? Or did it feel like it fitted into the the way books are, are published over there? I loved it from the second that I saw it because I really gravitate to like red and pink. So, and it's so striking. I never really thought about it. And I didn't even look up the difference in the covers till this morning. And then I was just so surprised that it was a UK cover. So I think just because of the way I started with it, I never really thought about that. But I also think, thankfully, there's becoming kind of a wider range of covers and that here in the US, we're not getting quite so stuck in the same ruts that they were for a while, where all the thriller covers look like this, all the historical fiction look like this. And I think the UK has already been a little more outside the box. And I think we're starting to be here. So I'm always happy when I see a cover that is different. That makes me happy. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, I think it's always interesting to me as well to see what sort of shelf books are are put into, because we, we tackle the crime genre slightly differently, I think, in the UK. We tend to just say crime as a, a kind of a, you know, a big catch-all, big kind of umbrella genre. But within that, it might be a kind of domestic suspense, almost women's fiction sort of book, or it might be a, a murder mystery or a, a hard-boiled detective or cozy crime. There's all sorts of subcategories. Whereas my experience in the States is that you you define your crime in a much clearer way. And so murder mysteries is, I mean, mysteries are a, are a, a kind of a genre of their own, aren't they? And then you would put uh, psychological thrillers in a separate category. Is that right? I think that's right. And I really struggle with that because I end up just using mystery slash thriller because I feel like some books would kind of veer toward thriller, some kind of veer toward mystery, but a lot of them are really in the middle. And so I find it difficult to decide which one they are. Some are very clear, but a lot of them aren't. And so, yes, it, it is a little confusing. It'd be nice if there was just an overarching, like like you say, crime fiction, and then you don't have to worry quite so much about, okay, where am I going to slot this? Yeah. Yeah. And if if people who are, are listening to this, if if you're writing yourself and, and you're sort of wondering what genre your book fits into, I would just say kind of park that thought. Don't worry too much about it because it can become, you know, a bit of a, a sort of uh, a mess in, in your head. So just just write a great mystery, whatever genre it, it fits in. Exactly. And I think that genre is continuing to grow and there are becoming more and more threads and, you know, different types of stories. And I welcome that. Yeah, me too. Me too. People just love crime, don't they, of, of all types. I think um, sometimes when the world is so sort of horrific, and boy, is it horrific uh, in many ways at the moment, we find reassurance, weirdly, in crime novels because they're resolved at the end. You know, it's okay, it's not the kind of the the happy ever after that you'd get in a a rom-com, but it is its own kind of happy ever after. You know, justice will triumph, the bad guys are locked up. Uh, you know, that there is a resolution. And that's quite comforting, I think, in a, a difficult world. You know, that's such a good point. I do feel like crime fiction is a wonderful thing to read when we are stressed out by this crazy world we're all living in. For me, I feel like it's because it transports me someplace else. It's fast paced, so I don't have time for my head to wander. And, you know, you, you're trying to kind of work out what's happening. So I feel like it just really keeps me engaged. 
But I think your point about it also having a solid resolution is probably really comforting. Yeah. And and also, I think mostly our lives are not as horrific as the lives that we're reading in crime fiction. And it's a little bit like stepping on a terrifying roller coaster, isn't it? You've got that knowledge that you're going to be scared, exhilarated, whatever, for a period of time. But at the end, you're going to step off it and back into your your life and everything's going to be fine. And that's certainly the effect that I try and induce when I'm writing is that sort of roller coaster, twisty, turny, breathless feeling, but also the resolution that's going to put you firmly feet back on the ground. And feel like, okay, maybe my life isn't quite as bad as I thought it was when I read about these crazy people. (laughs) Exactly that. (laughs) Well, I could talk with you all day, but I know that is not a possibility. So before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? So just yesterday, I finished Bleeding Heart Yard, which is Ellie Griffith's latest novel, which I think comes out this month, comes out in, in November. And I just loved it so much. So it's uh, it's the second in a, a new-ish series. And it's um, Ellie Griffiths is, is well known for the Ruth Galloway mysteries. But this particular series features a detective inspector called Harbinder Kaur, who is a, a Sikh police officer. And she is heading up a new team. And it's just, I, I loved her. I loved the characterization of the police officers and the way they got to know each other. It's a really, really clever mystery that's got a real kind of dark academia theme. And yeah, I just flew through it. So that is the book that I'm going to be pressing into everyone's hands this winter. I thought it was fantastic too. And I just interviewed her yesterday and we were talking about you. So I find it so funny that now I'm interviewing you and we're talking about her, but I thought it was a really great thriller as well. It was fab. And I promise you that this isn't a case of like, you know, nepotism about friends, friends deliberately bigging up each other's books. It honestly isn't. It's not like that at all. But it is really nice, nevertheless, to know that Ellie enjoyed the last party. (laughs) Yes, I think that's pretty funny. So, (laughs) Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining me again on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I always enjoy speaking with you. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Cindy. Thank you and roll on the next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes and luckily... That's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately 7 minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. 
On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!